All right, well, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, we should have two sheets. One is uh, a sheet for notes, and it has kind of a, a, re- a reformatted review of last week's lesson up at the top. And then the second is a handout from Desiring God called What is Baptism and How Important Is It? You can set that one aside. That's going to be homework for next week um, because next week we're going to be talking about the topic of baptism. So don't read ahead. Okay? I, I know that's the danger of... It's bad pedagogy. To give you all the information up front because then if you're like a normal junior higher... You're going to read ahead and not pay attention the rest of the time, but I trust that you're not like that. So uh, let's go ahead and get started with the word of prayer, and then we'll dive in. Father, thank you for the time to study your word. I thank you for the opportunity to discuss this topic together. I pray that it would be profitable, that it would be helpful, that it would be challenging to where we are in each of our respective spiritual journeys that we would be challenged to live a life that's pleasing to you and, and put forth much effort to that. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, last week we discussed what is the essential core of the gospel message. In other words, what is what what is the essential nuggets of information that must be known and understood and believed in order to be a Christian or to become a Christian? So the question or the title of last week's lesson was, what must I do to be saved? So what must we get? What must we know to be saved? And I think I probably unhelpfully uh, tried to get you to think on the level of a six-year-old. What would a six-year-old need to know? And I think where I failed was I wasn't really after, give me the exact words that you would use to instruct a six-year-old, but what are the concepts that a six-year-old would need to get? Um, I was thinking more on the conceptual level, and I think I failed you a little bit in leading the discussion last week. So what I've done is I've provided the five items and then my very brief description of those five items. So God, man and sin, Jesus, response, and promise. And I described those things as you can almost keep it in your, your hand in your pocket, and when you're sharing the gospel with someone, if you just kind of tick through your fingers, you can... Keep those five things in mind and share the gospel. And so I provided for you my very uh, baseline, lowest common denominator explanation of the gospel. That is, God is our creator and he is holy. We are God's creation made to enjoy a relationship with him and to obey him. Yet we disobeyed our creator, breaking our relationship with him, unable to save ourselves from the eternal consequences of our disobedience. And God will surely judge our sin because he is our holy creator. But God loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus Christ to earth to save us from the eternal consequences of our sin. Jesus lived the perfect life that we have failed to live and died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin, a death that we deserved. Three days after his crucifixion, he rose from the grave conquering death and sin. And our response to this good news should be to confess and turn from our sin and wholeheartedly trust in the forgiveness that God promises through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as revealed by God in His Word. Remember, that is such a critical, important point. That 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, repeated that twice, that we have to understand, we have to first believe God before we can believe the Gospel, right? Because we have to believe that what God has said in His Word is true. And then... Lastly, the promise for all those who repent and believe God promises a restored relationship with him both now and forever. And then I provide um, our definition of conversion. Our definition of conversion is a changed heart. A change of heart, abandoning myself and my sin, that is repentance, and embracing God in his grace. That's the faith or the trust, the belief. Does all this sound familiar? Yes. Good. We're learning at least the essentials of what I'm trying to get across every week. Remember, the idea of change. Keep that word in your mind, as that will be an important, important word throughout this lesson, change. So, our goal for this lesson, this discussion time together, is this. To discover the present results of the gospel 
in my life. To, dis- to discover the present result. You should have blanks. Do you not have blanks? Mm-hmm. Did I not change that? It's blank. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. To discuss or discover the present result of the gospel in my life. And as I've already tipped my hand, one of the fundamental results of the gospel in my life is... Say loud, say proud. Change. Change. Right? Because conversion is a change of heart. It's It's a change of direction away from sin toward God. So there's this fundamental result of the gospel and that is change in the life of a believer. And one of the, if not the most fundamental changes that takes place in the life of the believer at the point of conversion is that you and I have been united with Christ. So the the title of this lesson is Our Position in Christ we have been united with Christ. If you'd open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, if you have them. I just want to note the connection here. It's throughout this first paragraph of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul notes our connection with Christ Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In Christ. For He chose us in Him, that is, in Christ, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us for the adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the One, in Christ, whom He loves. In Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In Him, verse 11, that is, in Christ we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of His will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. And you were also included in Christ, When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in Him, that is in Christ, with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of His glory. In Christ, in Christ, through Christ. Are you with me? We have been united with Christ, this is a fundamental change that has taken place in our life when we have be, when we became Christian. I'm going to attempt to make this thing work. We'll see if it does. There we are. Cool new notes app on the iPad that works. allows me to write with my finger. So since I don't have a whiteboard, I got really smart this week. I decided I could attempt to draw you pictures with my finger. Now, that's a little scary because I'm a horrible artist. But, here, here's the idea. Here's union with Christ, my lame definition of it, okay? Union with Christ results in two changes. It results in a change in our identity and a change in our experience. Union with Christ, that is, we are now in Christ, results in a change in our identity and a change in our experience. Since I don't have a lot of room on my iPad, just follow me, okay? So, union with Christ. And it, and it results in two different changes. 
our identity and our experience. You could also say our position and our practice. You could say how God sees us and the way we live. So our union with Christ, this in Christ relationship, affects our identity and it affects our, our experience. So what are some ways that we see our identity change when we become Christians? So this part right over here, this identity, what what are some ways our, our identity changes when we are united to Christ? We want to emulate the character of Christ. Okay. So, like showing love to people that you didn't think were lovable, that you, you didn't really like. Okay. Would you, that be identity or experience? Look, that's identity. So I would think that that would actually flush itself out in our experience, how we live, right? What I had to do with your conversion. Well, when we were converted, there's this... identified with God's character. True, but the identification, I think that we're kind of muddying the terms of identify. But let me uh, put it this way. When we were united with Christ... Prior to that, we were sinners. We became saints. Prior to that, we were uh, spiritual orphans. We were adopted into his family and we became a spiritual son. Right? Right. We were unrighteous, we were unholy, and when we were justified, we were clothed in Christ's righteousness, and his robes became our robes, and we are now declared righteous in God's sight. So there's this new identity. If you looked in this passage that we just read, you could see some of the things that would identify us as in Christ. We've been predestined to the adoption of sonship, right? So now we have become sons. These are the ideas that give us a new identity. We are no longer slaves, right? In Galatians, one of the big points of Galatians is that we are no longer slaves to the law, but we are sons of faith children of faith according to Abraham. And so we have a new identity. But not only do we have a new identity, we have a new a new experience, a changed experience. That's what, where Wanda was going, is that we have a new way of living. Did I, what did I call it? Yolanda. No, I called her Wanda. I didn't call her Yolanda. What is going on? Are you really trying to mess with me? I'm hearing an extra syllable. Yeah, sorry. see, he's on Team Wanda, so sorry. <laughs> I told you. He's just trying to, yeah, I know. But he's, you know he's okay, who heard me call her Wanda? <laughs> who heard me call her Yolanda? Okay. We, know, we have identified the problem clearly. So we have this union with Christ that results in a change of identity, how God sees us. Right? He sees us in Christ. But a change of experience, the, our practice, how we live. Look at Romans chapter 6 with me. And while you're flipping there, Ephesians chapter 1, the passage we just read, verse 4 says this, For He chose us, that is, God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world, Anyone know the next couple words? To be holy and blameless in his sight. There is a practical, experiential change that takes place when we are united with Christ. Look at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, and see how our union with Christ affects our, our present day experience says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. 
For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Note the unity, right? We've been united. That's the picture of baptism that he's giving. Verse 6, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, listen now, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace." You can't help but read that text and walk away and see that our union with Christ not only gives us a new identity, but it gives us a new experience, a changed experience. It alters the way we live. It takes us from slaves to sin to slaves to righteousness, from dead in our sin to alive unto God. It gives us an ability to obey and please God. We can't miss that. Ephesians 2, 5 supports this. It talks about in that amazing passage, 1 through 11, I believe it is, where he starts that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but then in verse 5 he says, but you have been made alive to do, ultimately, verse 10 and 11, to do the good works that God has prepared beforehand. We have been made alive by our union with Christ. So we have this unity with Christ that results in a changed identity and a changed experience. And this changed experience is where I really want to spend the majority of our time talking about tonight. So how is our position in Christ, how does it affect the here and now? Because when we first talked about conversion, we talked about the gospel. Remember, we walked through the God, man, sin, Jesus, response and promise. And and we talked about, well, there's a point in time where you are converted, right? Whether we know when that was or not, there's a point in time when you're converted. And then we know that there's this promise that one day, down, down way down there, hopefully, we'll be glorified. Right? So there's this in-between. So one day we will have eternal life and we'll be just like Jesus. 1 John 3, 2 says, when we see him, we will be like him. Cool. But what about everything in between? Our union with Christ is very, very important because it has ramifications for now. Right? It affects our experience because there's a change of our experience. What do you think that we call this present experience that you and I live through from A to Z, from conversion to glorification, what is that in-between time called? Right, it's called sanctification. And I'd like to give you a word to tag on to that at the front end. I'd like to call it progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. How do you think you would define progressive sanctification? Don't fight over it. An ongoing process of change. Okay. Anyone else? I'm not disagreeing. Just okay. So that provides a goal. So there's an ongoing, I like the ongoing process of change, but change into what? More Christ-likeness. Okay, more Christ-likeness. What is 
the term sanctify means. Okay, to set apart or to make holy, right? So, our union with Christ gives us a new identity as having been declared by justification, right? Declared righteous before God. We are declared holy. We are already declared and viewed as Christ, Christ like by God. But we all know if we're living, breathing, real life people living in a sin cursed world and we're not Jesus, all of us realize that we're not perfect. We all sin every day. I mean, other than, right? But we all sin. So, there's this progress that has to take place. A progress that is moving towards holiness. And holiness is the goal. Christ-likeness is the goal. Righteousness is the goal. Let me state at the front end. We will never get there in this life. So long as we are living in a sin-cursed world... We will sin. But there ought to be, as we will talk about, progress. So, let me give you a couple explanatory statements or descriptive terms about progressive sanctification. So, you've, you've nailed the definition. It's a present process of God making us holy. It's God changing us right now into the image of His Son. So, we got all that, Right? So let's describe it a little bit more detail. Number one, progressive sanctification is progressive. I think, well, that's no doubt. Well, think about it this way. So I start out here at this point in time in life, right? And I start on my spiritual journey. Whoops. And then, oh, you keep going up. Whoops. And maybe whoops, whoops. But... And see, that ought to be the trajectory of your life. That doesn't mean that there's never valleys. You're heading down the, the mount, mm-hmm. other side of the mountain, ready to crash and burn, holding on for dear life. I'm not trying, I would never want to intimate that when I say sanctification is progressive, that we think that there's just this straight line up like that. Because that's not biblical. That's just not biblical. I wish it was that way. But there's bumps in the road. So the overall trajectory of our life ought to be upward towards holiness. Like Titus 2 says, that the grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us to do what? To say no to ungodliness and worldly lust, and to say yes to a whole slew of other good things, right? So the grace of God isn't just this thing that identifies us as righteous and makes us this this amazing identity as in Christ. But the grace of God also has practical experiential ramifications for our life now. One of which is progressive sanctification. And it is a progressive upward trending move towards holiness. It is slow. It is slow. Some of us think that and I, I, I want, I wish that it was a sprint. I wish it was just, okay, I become a Christian. You know, in like five days, I'm holy. But it's not. That's why God gives you a lifetime. God gives you a lifetime. When you're 80, like my grandparents, who are, are, are godly, godly people, they're still working on it. They're still working on it. So it's slow. It takes a lifetime. And it's, it, is, it is truly progressive. 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about, um, it uses the term ever-increasing glory. But basically the idea is from glory to glory to glory to glory. That there, we just become more Christ-like and more Christ-like and more Christ-like and more Christ-like. From glory to 
from glory to glory to glory to glory. It's progressive. Number two, it's inevitable. Your progressive sanctification, if you are a true believer, is inevitable. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. It's one of my most favorite. It's from my most favorite book in the Bible, and it's one of my most favorite verses. Paul says to the Philippians, being confident of this, that he, that is God, who began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So God is at work in you from A, conversion, all the way until Z, glorification. And he has started that good work in you, and he will complete that good work in you. It is inevitable. It is a guarantee. If you are a true child of God, that's going to happen in you. Now, if that's true, then you might think, well, it's, I'm passive. Uh, it's just going to happen. I can kind of just sit back, kind of relax, put my feet up on my lazy boy, watch my football game, watch the Patriots dominate everybody, and just go on my merry way. And that upward trajectory, there's really not going to be that many bumps, right? I mean, there's not going to be that many dips downhill. It's just going to be kind of nice and smooth diagonal line. But see, it is progressive, it is inevitable, but it is not automatic. It is not automatic. In other words, man is not passive in the process of sanctification. Man is not process. Uh, passive in the process of sanctification. Now, this is where some of us who tend to be more uh, polar in our thinking, who see things very uh, in stark contrast, have a problem. Like, for instance, God's sovereignty and being responsibility. We know that this is true, and we know this is true. How those things really work out, I mean, we ought to try to figure it out as much as we can, but like we can't fully know all of that. And this is another one of those areas where, okay, we know that God says that he's going to continue. He's going to finish the work he started. Okay, we know that. But wait a second. I can't be passive? How does that work? And this is where I think sometimes we get confused, but we cannot be passive. God does not give us that option. If I could put it this way, um, someone said this. In sanctification, we are simultaneously 100% dependent upon God and 100% devoted to God. It's not a 50-50 sort of thing. It's a 100%, 100%. We are 100% uh, dependent upon God for our sanctification. Yet we are also, at the same time, 100% devoted to God. This requires our effort. Just a chapter later in Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 say this. Paul says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But notice that right after that, in verse 13, he says, for it is God who works it works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And you think, What? What in the world am I supposed to do with that? Trust God. And work. Romans 6. We've already read this. Verses 12 through 14 say this. Therefore, do not let sin reign. Paul is telling you. Paul is telling me. Paul is telling the Romans. Okay, you have received this grace. You have been justified. But don't let grace be an opportunity for you to sin more, that doesn't make any sense. That's that's completely contrary to the gospel. So he says, hey you, do this hard work of not letting sin reign in your mortal body. Verse 13, so do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Rather, offer yourselves to God. This, is, this requires our effort. This requires our activity. This is not a passive thing where we just sit back and we see God saying, well, just wait. I'll do it. I'll take care of it. No, God says, I'm 100% 
devoted to your sanctification, and you need to be too. Second Peter chapter one verse five says, "Make every effort." And then it goes through this long chain of things to add to your faith. You see, while our our sanctification is progressive, while it is inevitable, it is not automatic. And if I could add this, it is sure tough. Our sanctification is tough. God never promises in his word that sanctification is going to be easy. That life in a sin-cursed world is going to be easy. In fact, he allowed Solomon, one of the wisest and most wealthy men, get to the end of his life and, and write a book where he tells us that life in a sin-cursed world is a big pile of frustration. And at the end of that book, he gets done and says, there's a time for this and there's a time for that. And, you know, I tried to pursue happiness in all the wrong places and I never found it. I didn't find it in this. I didn't find it in that. I didn't find it in all these places. But here's what I figured out. Remember, he's the wisest, declared by God. At the end of it all, the only way to live life in a sin-cursed world is to fear God and to keep his commandments. To have a respect for God because he is king and because he is kind. As Pastor Doran said in a sermon, to have a heartfelt respect for God because of his majesty over us and his mercy toward us. So we fear God and we obey. But it's tough. Think about Romans 7, where Paul, he sounds like he is... Uh, bipolar or something, you know? In one sense, he's like, well, the things that I know I'm supposed to do, I don't do those. And the things that I really know I'm not supposed to do, I do those. And the things that I'm like, what are you talking about? But we all get it, right? We all get it. We all get it because we live it every day. Because we know, you know what? I really shouldn't get angry today when I hit my golf ball in the weeds. But I got angry when I hit my golf ball in the weeds. I didn't golf, but I'm just (laughs) pretending. Right? Or when that idiot driver is driving just in an idiotic way on the way to church, and you get angry. And you know, God, I'm not supposed to get angry at this person. I have to be patient. I have to drive the speed limit. What a concept. (laughs) But what do we do? We do the very thing that we know we're not supposed to do. It's tough. It's going to take significant effort. Who of us has withstood the test of temptation to the point where we have shed our own blood? We have not worked that hard. 1 Peter 2.11, listen to the way Peter couches it. He says, I urge you to abstain from sinful desires. And listen how he says it. Which wage war against your soul? Folks, we are truly in a spiritual battle. Satan has his flaming arrows aimed at us. We are in a battle. It is a war zone here. First Peter 2.11 Galatians 5 verses 16 through 18 say this Paul says so I say walk by the spirit and ye will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh they are in conflict with each other so that you do not or so that you are not to do whatever you want So we have this war waged inside of us. But let me at least, because I haven't alluded to this yet. Romans 6, Ephesians 4, Colossians, somewhere in there, talks about how this war has already been won, hasn't it? See, we're not fighting this war unarmed. We're not fighting a battle that is we are going to lose. 
If we are in Christ, if we have been united with Christ, we have been united with the King of Kings, the one who has been given power and dominion over everything. You see, the battle has been won. We've got to keep that in mind. That old nature has been crushed. Galatians 2 talks about we have been crucified with Christ. So that sin that had so much power and control, it no longer has slavery over us. If I could put it this way, we were once, before we came to Christ, totally depraved. We were totally enslaved to sin. When you come to Christ, you are no longer totally depraved. You have an ability to please God. Yes. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about that after class. Um, what was the question? That's a, okay. She asked. So sometimes in scripture, there's old self and old nature, um, and then some people, and then some translations use old man. If I remember from my uh, seminary days, I'll, I'll try to just quickly answer that because I think we might have time. So, uh, self and man are typically one thing, and nature is another thing. So, uh, our self, typically described in, in, in Romans 6, is probably what you're referring to. So, our self is our what we would call, for lack of a better term, if excuse me, one, our identity in Adam. Our old self would be our identity in Adam, that, that person who was enslaved to sin. And we have a new self. Um, so that's been crucified and our new self is this new identity that we have in Christ so now we're in Christ rather than in Adam so that would be like our old self and our new self now we also have a nature this would be like a sin principle like uh, if if you've ever bought a remnant of a carpet or tile remnant there's you know this big section of of tile or carpet and then there's little slivers that are left over well, those are remnants. Well, we still have this sin nature, this, this sin remnant that still affects us. But its power is no longer um, the trump card in us, right? It's no longer has this... It's still... Man, it's still a beast, <laughs> right? But we have the Holy Spirit of God living within us, and it is far more powerful than that sin. It's kind of confusing. I have a great article for you to read. I don't have time to like really. I would love to do a whole lesson on it because it'd be really clear and helpful. But I refer you to a nice article that might help you. So we've looked at progressive sanctification. This is one of the outworkings of our union with Christ in our experience, our changed experience. We said it's progressive. We said it's inevitable. That it is not automatic. Therefore, we must be actively involved in it, and it's really, really tough. But I think that there's some extremes that we have to avoid, right? If we're going to say that we're involved in our sanctification, that we have the ability, we're actually called by God to put forth an effort, we have to avoid some extremes. So on one side of the extreme, which none of us would really suggest that we hold to, would be legalism. Legalism. And on this side, legalism is saying, with respect to our sanctification, is that our good works in some way contribute to our standing with God. That our good works somehow contribute to our justification. So we must, we're motivated in a legalistic sense, right? To be sanctified, to do good works. Because they're going to earn us some sort of grace. And we all say to that, we no, say no, something no. loudly, right? No. We say no, right? Because Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for instance, it is for by grace that we are saved through faith and not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. You see, on the legalism side, there's this overemphasis on doing. we got to do, 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 do. But I don't think that we're necessarily all the time immune to this, right? Have you ever um, have you ever been just completely overrun in your life with guilt? 
Now, sometimes you ought to feel guilty. But do you find yourself, like, all the time, every time you literally, like, stub your toe spiritually, just being completely crippled and overrun by guilt? Perfection being the only way to live your life. That perfection is the standard. Constantly working towards this holy exterior. But the heart change is kind of forgotten. We all have probably heard of churches. Really, really, really fundamental strict churches that, that have promoted this sort of thing where you have to have your hair combed the right way. You have to wear a skirt that's like way down there, right? And guys, I'm not sure what we're supposed to do, but facial hair, you know, you can't have facial hair. You can't have wire room glasses, I'm sure. And there's a whole other line of, okay, if you do this, you do this, you do this, you're holy. And, and, and they're, they for, forget about this thing in here called the real you that is heart. So there's legalism on one, one end, but there's license on the other. And honestly, my fear in our church and our churches like us isn't so much the legalism, it's the license. It's that, and, and here's where, what, where this is at, is that I am already declared right before God because I have been identified I'm united in Christ. So I've already been declared righteous before God. And so my sole motivation for obedience isn't because God has said, obey me. My sole motivation for obedience is out of gratitude for being right with God. So for instance, that packet of material that I gave you, if you had a chance to read that, and it was an argumentation back and forth between a guy named Kevin DeYoung and Tully and Trevidian. Tully and Trevidian would be on this camp, or at least lean heavily into this camp, of license, where he says that the, the sole motivation for a believer's sanctification is his justification. Because you have been declared right before God, you ought to appreciate the fact that uh, what he has done for you. And that's your motivation for living. So there's an emphasis on what God has done, who you are, your being. But I think here's some some significant consequences or potential consequences of that. Is that there's a minimization of the seriousness of sin. Think about it. You could legitimate, or not saying legitimately, but from this you could potentially conclude, well, I'm a sinner. I can't help it. But hey, I've repented, I believe, I'm right with God because I've been declared right with God. So I just keep on going. And even this guy Tullian at times seems to intimate that just about any effort towards your sanctification, he throws out the accusation of legalism. I think that that is pretty anti-biblical. Sometimes this is called the free grace movement. I think it's a horrible name because grace is free and grace is awesome. I don't think that you can ever overemphasize God's grace. We just have to emphasize all of God's grace. Not just one aspect. Because you see, God's grace does not come to us only by means of justification, our right standing before God. God's grace comes to us in a full-orbed sense. You see, when we're united with Christ, Ephesians chapter 4 says that, that Christ is the fountain from which every spiritual blessing flows to us. So it is when we are united with Christ, all of God's spiritual blessings flow to us through Jesus. So that means we can't just say our justification is God's grace. No, our regeneration is God's grace. And a whole slew of other things. So if I could offer some sort of middle ground, some biblical solution, I would like to call it 
whole gospel motivated sanctification. Whole gospel is in W H O L E gospel sanctification. So it's whole gospel motivated sanctification. Because, and here's the reason why I'm, I'm so concerned about the whole license thing. Because, for instance, there's a guy named Jerry Bridges. We all love Jerry Bridges. He wrote an article called Gospel Driven Sanctification. And when I read it, I thought, hey, that sounds a lot like this, this free grace movement. And then he wrote a book later on called The Pursuit of Holiness, which set my heart at ease. <laughs> but see, you and I have read a whole slew of books that say, preach the gospel to yourself every day. And we're like, yeah, that sounds awesome. And it is. And you should preach the gospel to yourself every day. You need to preach the whole gospel to yourself every day. You see, what happens in this license side is they preach one aspect of the gospel. You're right with God. You're right with God. You're right with God. You've already been declared right. You stand in Him complete. Yes, and that's all true. But that's only one slice of this multifaceted diamond that we talked about a few weeks ago. So what I'd like to call is whole gospel-motivated sanctification. So we know, in rejection of legalism, that our good works do not contribute in any way to our justification. We know that. But in, in, in rejection, sort of, of the license, because it's really a matter of emphasis, our changed identity inevitably leads to our changed experience. See, that you can't disconnect them, right? Our new position inevitably leads to our new practice. Okay, to put it in more biblical language, our faith inevitably produces good works. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Our faith will inevitably produce good works. And we would also say that for a faith without works is not genuine saving faith, right? That's the point of James. That, hey, if if you have faith and you don't have works, you really don't have faith. And I don't think James is just talking about, okay, you do this nice thing for this person, you do this nice thing for this person. I think he's talking about your life. Are you living a holy life? Out of faith flows a holy life. Let me put a nut, give you another biblical paradigm to think through. Our love for God is demonstrated in our obedience to God. 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. So our love for God results in obedience for God. And likewise, we could say, if there's a, if your life is not characterized by obedience and this up and down but yet majorly upward trajectory of holiness, it is fair biblically to question your own love for God. I mean... We all get this, and this is kind of a silly illustration, but if you claim to love your kid, but you never change his poopy diaper, you never give him any food, then literally the entire scope of your parenting would be described and characterized by neglect. Yet you claim to love him the whole time. The genuineness of your claim it's got to be called into question, right? I mean, I think that we all get that, but the same applies for this. So we must pursue hard after holiness for multiple gospel reasons, not just because we're justified. And I would like to suggest to you that one often neglected motivation for our sanctification is our regeneration is our regeneration. So what is regeneration? It is the gift of spiritual life to the spiritually dead. It is a gift given by God through the power of the Holy Spirit where He gives spiritually dead people like you and me spiritual life. If I could put it maybe in a way where we like we like to talk a little bit more warm and fuzzy, and I like this too. But he gives us a new heart. We get a heart transplant. That old heart has been removed from our body, and we've been given a new heart. 
a new heart that has new affections for God. Right? Because we never had affections for God before. We had affections only for ourselves and only for our sin. But now, when we're regenerated, we have a new heart with new affections. So now we have a love for God that we didn't have before. And we have a new ability. We have an ability to say no to that sin because that sin has been crucified in us. So its power over us, its slavery, is it's done. So we have a new ability to please God. So we can think about it, if we think about sanctification that way, certainly we ought to be motivated by gratitude, but we ought to be motivated because we have a new heart. We love God, and we have the ability to demonstrate our love for God through obedience. So, because of our time, I am not going to ask you to actually answer these questions out loud. I'm going to give you some food for thought. But I have four questions slash comments that are kind of like follow-up, clarification, sort of objection things to what I've just said. And I would like you to maybe just think through, it's okay to daydream here on one or another. How would you respond to someone that might say something like this? Well, I'm a sinner. I was born that way. In fact, I didn't really even have a choice in the matter. Right? It was Adam's fault. So sin is inevitable in my life. I'm going to fail God no matter how hard I try to obey Him. So what in the world is the point? So how would you respond? Well, I would like to offer a couple things. One, remember your regeneration. Look at the fact that when you became united with Christ, when you were converted, you got a new heart with new affections and new abilities. You gained a heart that loves God and has the capability of obeying. So you are able to obey. You are dead to sin. You are alive to God. You are no longer slaves to sin. You are slaves to righteousness. So you have the ability to please God, Romans 6. Don't give up the fight. So remember your regeneration, but remember that this thing is painful. This thing is tough. This thing is difficult. Remember that you're not going to be perfect. It might be that you have too high of a standard. You're expecting perfection, which is something that God, I don't believe, actually expects from you in this life. I think God's expectation in this life is not perfection and holiness for you and me, but I think it's progressive pursuit of holiness. It's a progressive pursuit of holiness. So that's number one. Number two, how does my continued sin, because we've all acknowledged the truth that we continue to sin, how does my continued sin affect my relationship with God, and what can I do about it? Well, we've already said this, but as long as you are living in this sin-cursed world, you are going to sin. Until you're glorified. But your relationship with God is secure. Your relationship with God is secure. So if I have a relationship here, and I'm going to put F for fellowship. So you're going to sin, and your relationship isn't touched. Your relationship stays the same. God is your father, you are his child. But if I could describe fellowship over here as this, the enjoyment of that relationship. When you sin in this life, the enjoyment of that relationship is messed up. So what recourse do you have? 1 John 1.9, confess your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins. Matthew 6. In the, in the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayers, can likes to say, "Forgive us our our sins." Right? But we're the, we're, we keep talking about we're going to sin, and I which we are. But we're the person who doesn't feel guilty about it, and it becomes habitual. And you just see a friend that claims to be a Christian, and they're I don't think they're, they feel guilty about it, and it's habitual. What do you say about that? Well, 
One, you're not their conscience. No, I mean. So, but th- but we are called as the church to evaluate people's life. I mean, we hold. Some people would interpret the church holds the keys of the kingdom. So we hold the the entrance right into the church and out of the church, right? So we were called to make a serious evaluation of someone's fruits, right? To determine whether or not their conversion is genuine. Um, obviously, it's not each individual person's place to run around and you know be that judge for everybody. But as a church, we are. And I definitely think that it's possible for people to go through life, have a claim, but have a life that never backs up that claim. And I think that just proves that they never were a believer in the first place. I don't believe you can lose your salvation. So a friend of mine back in Milwaukee liked to put it this way. If you don't have the fruit, or he put it this way, if you ain't got the fruit, you ain't got the root. And I think it's true. If you have a life that's characterized by no fruit, or a life that's characterized by disobedience or unholiness, well, at least it should cause our hearts to stir and to seriously evaluate where we are Do we have a real relationship with God? Now, I can't be the judge of that. Only you and God can determine that. Um, So I'm not going to stand in that place and try to assess that for somebody. It's like people who talk the talk but don't walk the walk, so to speak. But do we stand by? Well, I don't think we stand by. I think that's yeah, I think that I think that there's a place for so if you First uh, Peter end of chapter one talks about that we ought, I think it's in chapter one it talks about how we as believers ought to have an enduring love for one another an intense enduring love for one another and I think that even though it doesn't say that in this text but that principle an intense enduring love for that means I ought to be willing to go the distance forever for that one that I love. And we are to have that kind of intense enduring love for each other. So if you were to see that sort of behavior in, in a brother or sister in Christ, I think that it's our duty to certainly humbly and graciously talk to them. I mean, because sometimes we have spiritual eyes, like our spiritual eyes are hardened or blinded, blinded and we, we can't, we don't see it. Um, or we see it and we're just we're hardened by the deceitfulness of sin which so let me give you this illustration so I will always be my dad's not here he's on his way home from South Carolina tonight but um, I will always be Ken Fisher's son I can't do anything about that I don't want to do anything about that by the way but I can't Um, there's nothing I can do about the fact that I'm a son that I bear the Fisher name But my behavior does have the ability to alter the enjoyment of my relationship with my dad, right? Now think about it that way with our relationship with God. As believers, as people who have been united to God, who've been adopted into his family through Christ, he is our father. This cannot change. But our fellowship or our enjoyment of that relationship can change by our sin in this life. That's why we must confess our sins. We must have an attitude of confession. Number three, am I being hypocritical or legalistic when I obey when I don't feel like it? Here's my answer. No. (laughs) If our obedience is the fruit, and I'll try to read this slowly, if our obedience is the fruit of our love for God, then our obedience is when we don't feel like obeying, is one of the surest evidences that we do actually love God. Let me explain how that is. So here is what I think is a biblical definition. I could probably put it more eloquently, but a biblical definition of love. Love is sacrificing myself for the good of the one that I love. We get that when it comes to people, right? Because... Like we understand, but how do you sacrifice yourself for God? And what is the good of God? I think simply put, the good of God is his glory. So, 
if the good of God is his glory, when I obey God, when I don't feel like it, I am making that hard, right, sacrificial choice to put him ahead of me. I believe that is true biblical love. Because as 2 Corinthians 5, I think it's 15, says that we were saved to no longer live for ourselves, but to, but to live for him who died for us and was raised again. See, so there's a big paradigm shift. Living for self, living for God. Number four, is there any sense in which the effort that I put forth in sanctification is something that I can take pride in? No. Why would I say no? It's because the, the very ability, ability that I now have as a believer was given to me by God. I didn't do anything to get regenerated, did I? No. That is a supernatural work of God where His Holy Spirit gives me spiritual life. When I was spiritually dead, can a spiritually dead person do anything other than keep doing what spiritually dead people do? Answer, no. They can't do anything other than sin. So I can't take credit for it. It is only by God's grace that I'm able to trust Him, love Him, and obey Him. So, I just, even though I didn't want to, I tried to keep it simple. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, and I stood here with a you know, fireman's hose and just sprayed you down with fire hydrant of information. We have been united with Christ. That has both a changed identity and a changed experience. And part of that changed experience is our progressive sanctification, which is progressive, inevitable. It is not automatic, and it is really, really tough. We must be driven by the entire gospel, both our justification and our our, our regeneration. You have the ability, when you read God's word, to say, Oh, God, my creator... The one that said that, I actually have the ability to do that. So I need to go do it. Go obey. Make every effort. Take great pains to obey, to mortify sin, and to pursue holiness in your life. So I, I end by this. Does your life demonstrate that you are undergoing change? If change is, is, is one of the most fundamental results of the gospel in your life, are you undergoing a change? Would people around you, would people that know you best, say that you are undergoing a change, and a good change, a change towards holiness, that your life, over the time that they've known you, over the time that you've been a believer, that has been an upward trajectory towards holiness? Number two, are you actively involved in, or are you passively standing by waiting for change to take place? Are you actively making every effort to change or are you passively waiting for God to change you? It's not one or the other. Remember, it is 100% devotion of God to your sanctification and it's 100% devotion of you. And three, are you proud of the change that has taken place or are you humbly appreciative for God's transforming grace in your life? Because you have no, there's no room for pride. Because even if if you can look back in your life and take a spiritual inventory and say, you know what, yeah, there's there's been some downs and there's been a lot of downs, but I can honestly say that since I became a believer in the last year or two or ten, that I've seen God work in me. I, I'm I'm actually in some areas more holy than I was. Praise God, praise yourself, because it's not you. God's regenerative power in your life. I hope this lesson will prove to have been helpful to you. Um, this sheet that I gave you, next week we're talking about baptism. Baptism is, as we will look at, like the first step of obedience. It's the first step of your sanctification, really. And so we're going to talk about baptism. This, this is by John Piper. 
not everything in here would like totally jive with where community is at doctrinally. There's nothing like crazy, so there's nothing heretical in here. Just some different doctrinal positions that people are on the fence about. He touches on here, but the overall gist of what he talks about with respect to baptism is dead on, and I think it will be a good primer for next week. So it's short. It's only you know four short pages. Uh, I encourage you to read that as we talk about baptism next week. So let's pray, and then we'll go. Father, thank you for the time to talk. I pray that you would help, would help this lesson to sink deeply, and not from what I said, but from what your word says that we would pursue hard after you, that we pursue holiness because you are a holy God and you have saved us by your Holy Savior and you've given us your Holy Spirit and you, your destiny for us is a holy destiny in heaven where there is no sin. And our ultimate destiny is this new heavens and new earth which will be completely recreated with no sin, no death, no nothing of that. And we are your holy people. So God, help us to pursue holiness in this life as we already have been declared to be through Christ. In your name I pray. Amen.